0: This is an Irish
1: independent podcast.
0: Listeners should be aware this podcast contains strong language.
2: Today on the Indo-Daily, the Anglo tapes and national scandal and how the Irish independent broke the story, part one. Ireland in 2013 was a country still living in the shadows of the financial crash of 2008.
1: Tuesday the 30th of September 2008 will go down in history as the blackest day in Ireland since the civil war broke out.
2: Now that was when global stock markets tumbled, banks went bust and some countries, including our own, were plunged into recession.
0: In government buildings at 4am this morning, senior bankers, regulators and the government hammered out the final details of a deal after hours of feverish negotiations.
3: And I can tell you, if funds are not secured by the Irish banks, it will be a very,
1: very serious matter for economic life in this country.
2: People had every right to feel sore. Irish taxpayers were and indeed are still paying back billions bailing out Irish banks. This is what a bankrupt nation looks like. The legacy of a credit-fueled property boom that went spectacularly bust. People here blame the banks, and one bank in particular, Anglo-Irish. And then, in June 2013, this came to light. How
3: did they make it happen, you know? Yeah,
2: yeah.
3: yeah. But we're, in, we're into a different phase now, you know? Oh, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, um, and how did you arrive at the set? just, the someone would say, picked it out of my arse, you know.
2: And for the first time, the nation had an insight into the banking antics in Anglo-Irish Bank in the lead-up to our financial crash.
0: What's up today?
3: Um, I know know, making, um, making nice progress. Uh, uh, you're using that guarantee. You're paying too much
0: in Germany, I heard, now as well.
2: Published exclusively by the Irish Independent, these taped conversations between senior banking executives in 2008 sent shockwaves across the country and Europe.
3: What happened in that bank? has had consequences for families all over this country who are still suffering from it. And the people who suffered those consequences, the people who are now stuck with big mortgages, the people who are stuck with businesses that went down the tubes because of what the collapse in the economy are entitled to hear directly from the people who were involved the answers to those
0: questions.
2: I'm Siobhan Maguire, and in the first of this two-part special, the Indo-Daily is joined by Paul Williams, special correspondent, Donald O'Donovan, business editor, and Fionnán Sheehan, Ireland editor, to explain how they broke the anglo Tape scandal. I yep.
3: always believed that the reason I was selected for the tapes was that I was a crime reporter and it would look like the cops had leaked them to me. My
1: reaction was, how do we know this is real? So, that
0: majorly sparked a row between me and Paul Williams. I had a list. I said, well, I don't think you need me, Paul, because it, that does that does the job. So you've got the human absolutely inside the, uh, inside the Death Star, essentially, and it's, uh, it's a knockout.
2: Paul Williams, we talk about the Anglo tapes and their relevance from the stories the Irish Independent broke in 2013. But for you, this story began way before that. When?
3: So in 2012, I started working with the Irish Independent and I was approached by some people who said we have some evidence in relation to Anglo-Irish Bank and criminality that was going on. And at this stage... Everybody knew Anglo-Irish Bank had been responsible for the economy crashing, and the country was in the absolute depths of, of poverty. So I'm a crime journalist. I'm more used to being at home, you know, writing about how the drug trade works and murders work and all of that, rather than spreadsheets and banks. So I said to the people who approached me, well, look, if there's a smoking gun, give me a smoking gun. And a number of months later, in February of 2013, I got a phone call to go to a meeting, where I went to a meeting in a hotel and I met two people and they handed me a piece of paper. And this piece of paper, I was told, was part of a transcript of a tape. So I asked all kinds of questions. What's this tape about? Where is it from? They said it's a conversation between the then acting director of Treasury, John Bowe. His phone was permanently recording all conversations like on all banks. And the director of retail banking, at Anglo-Irish Bank, Peter Fitzgerald. Okay, so I understood that. And basically, it was only a a few lines of, of text, and I'll read it to you. They're saying that they needed emergency liquidity funding at the bank. This is, as I say, the 18th of September 2008. So, John Bo says, yeah, and that number is 7 billion. This is the money they needed. But the reality is that we actually need more than that. But you know the strategy here is that you pull them in, you get them to write a big cheque, and they have to support their money. This is the central bank, this is the Irish taxpayer. And Fitzgerald replied, say, yeah, they've got skin in the game, and that is the key. And Bo says, if they, as in the central bank, saw the enormity of it up front, they might decide that they have a choice. You know what I mean? they might say the cost to the taxpayer is too high. But if it doesn't look too big at the outset, if it looks big enough to be important, but not too big, that it kind of spoils everything, then, then I think you have a chance. It can creep up. Now, that piece of paper was handed to me and I was told it was a tape to go with that. We were walking potentially into the valley of death, because this was a criminal investigation. It was the biggest thing that had ever happened in the Irish economy. Um, This was all secret stuff, but it was also, as I say, the the reason why Ireland had now got a bailout. So I made arrangements with the people I'd met. First of all, that I would use a burner phone, and they would use a burner phone. Um, Then the arrangement was made that the tape that was relevant could be dropped in for me, and... At that stage, nobody else knew what all of this was about. I was protecting the sources because this was hugely, hugely sensitive.
2: Fionn, we've heard from Paul Williams uh, about the process of how he came upon those particular tapes, just how explosive the content uh, of these tapes actually was. How did you become embroiled in all of this? So I
1: was called into a meeting one day in the editor's office, Stephen Ray and himself and Paul Williams was there and there was some other people there, including Cormac Burke who was the news editor at the, at the time. And I came in, I didn't know what it was about, and I was told, have a listen to this. And somebody had play on a on, on the computer and I heard this dramatic, uh, quite explosive uh, comments being made.
3: Yeah, and that's about <laughs> and, then, and, then, yeah, and that, that number is, is seven, but the reality is that actually we need more than that. Uh, yeah. But the you know, strategy here is you pull them in, you get them to, to write a big cheque and they have to keep, they have to support their money, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
1: They've got skin in the game. Look, the key. They have. So we just sat in silence, and I was just asked, "What do you think?" And
2: what did you think? I
1: say, apart from then, wow, this is amazing, and you know, this is quite dramatic, and it goes to the heart of the problems that the country was still encountering. We were effectively five years. On from the the start of of the crash at, at that point, and that this seemed to show that the bank that was at the centre of it all was was culpable uh, very much, and was very much aware of what was happening. But my reaction was, how do we know this is real? So that immediately sparked a row between me and Paul Williams because it was it was Paul's uh, work he'd he'd obtained, but. It was just a question that I had, right, the veracity of this, because you you wouldn't put it past somebody to have put something together. That was what was going on in my head. So I I was reassured of of the the veracity of this, but because I had kind of challenged what was being presented and raised questions about it, the editor, Stephen Ray, turned around and said to me, okay, I want you working on it then, because he wanted these issues to kind of be, be, be trashed out. From then on, I was working with Paul and with uh, with Donald on on kind of the presentation of the of the package over the over the following weeks before it went out and and coming up to that weekend. So there was there was a lot of background work in terms of obviously the the, the verification uh, of them, the, the meaning of the conversations, the transcripts, putting the edits together in terms of the audio package that was going out. There was also. A, a, the back of your mind was constantly the, the legal issues because there were people being charged. The people who were on these conversations uh, weren't, but you didn't want to um, compromise any other prosecutions or any prospective prosecutions. So there had to be a very careful edit. It wasn't just a case of putting the entire tape out. You had to literally slice and dice it such that you weren't going to potentially prejudice any, any court proceedings. So that was very careful and very cautiously done I was working with with people on our our video team on our graphics team because it was all about this was quite complicated yeah there was some very lovely sound bites in there but you had to explain to people what is this conversation about what are they actually discussing in terms of the balance sheet of the bank and how ultimately this affected the downfall of the bank that brought down the Irish economy
2: So when you walked into that office on that day and they played the tape for you. And of course, you were right to ask the question, how do we know this is this is real, this is authentic? But was there a, a feeling, a buzz in the room that, my goodness, we have something explosive? Oh, yeah, I mean,
1: there was a public interest, but there was also a way of interesting the public because it was so digestible. The, what the public interest was the Irish economy had collapsed off the back of this bank uh, it had effectively threatened the euro, if not you know perhaps Ireland's membership uh, of the euro uh, we had lost our sovereignty and everything spilled from the Anglo story was was the genesis of all of that. so that was that was one aspect and also because there was that ability then to explain it to people because it wasn't a memo. it wasn't something that was officially written down. these were colloquial conversations between senior executives in the bank. they were talking casually. And therefore, it was all very unguarded, and as a result, they were using phrases that they obviously wouldn't have used if they were speaking in a in in, in any sort of uh, a public realm. They
3: thought the normally of it upfront. They might decide they might decide they have a, a choice. You know what I mean? They might say that the cost of taxpayers is too high, but um, if it doesn't look too big at the outset. Looks big enough to be important, but not too big that it kind of spoils everything, then I
1: think you have a chance. That's probably why the attraction was you could hook people in on those, those sound bites and those phrases that became very much known to people over the following period but also it was an easy way then to to get into actually explaining to people what exactly was going on at the time
2: so paul williams is the man with the source and he knows he has something that is gold in terms of the information and what this will do in terms of causing ripples across the globe he calls on you the fountain of sense (laughs) to come in and decipher all of this, Donald.
0: He did. I didn't know Paul. And Paul wasn't really working uh, at the end of the time. I didn't know Paul. I was working in in the business section, as I still do. And I think at the time I was kind of a finance correspondent. And I just got a call one day from Paul Williams, who I didn't know. But I knew, obviously, I knew his name, you know, from kind of the gangster stuff and asking me to meet. And Stephen Ray had had asked him to give me a call, who was the, was the, the editor at the end of the time. So I did. I, I obviously happily met him um, and very cloaked and dark. I said, sure, come into the office. I said, no, no, no we didn't want to meet in the office. Uh, so I said I'd meet him wherever he wanted to meet. And he asked me where I left. I was living in Sandiment and in Dublin at the time. And uh, so we agreed to meet in a pub in Sandiment uh, on a very sunny afternoon, kind of spring afternoon. And
2: Very old school journalism there.
0: It was very old school, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we went out, I met him. We were the only customers, I think, in, I think it was Mulligan's uh, pub in Sandyment. I still laugh because Paul was a great guy to work with, a very interesting character, but he had a baseball cap on, he kind of pulled down over his eyes and he had a jacket up around his, his ears, I remember, and and he had been covering some like really properly dangerous gangster guys, and he he had, at different times, obviously been in kind of very much for his life, uh, but I did have a chuckle because my hand on my heart, again, I I think the chances of sort of being knocked off by gangsters in Sandymount are fairly slim, but we met and we had a pint and we kind of introduced each other and there was a, a little bit of a, a feeling out exercise I think, Paul was feeling me out really, and then sort of gradually he introduced the idea that you know he had this he had this thing and uh, he felt that there was a story there, but he wasn't a hundred percent sure and he wanted he wanted me to to sort of just give my views on it really, and he had the he had a laptop with him and he had CD. Because laptops in those days had CD players, and he had a CD, and he had a set of headphones, and he said, "Well, would you listen to this?" and uh, and I did. So he had just he had just kind of snippets, and I had a listen. I said, well, "I don't think you need me, Paul, because that does the job. It does exactly what you wanted to do. It tells the story. You don't need complication. There's no great complexity to this. This is human. So you've got the human absolutely inside the uh, inside the dead star. Essentially, um, you know, this is what's going on, and and it's uh, it's a knockout." because Boss were fucking sold and Lehman's went bust and fucking Bank of America fucking took over Merrill's and
3: other fucking non-normal things happened to you <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know <laughs> Yeah, anyway rot, you know, annoying me. We can't yeah. fucking I know, like, we, can, we, we can't sort everything out No, yeah. but this concept of we uh, my old thing about it, we're the only fucking house in the west of Ireland with a dry roof Fuck <laughs> that yeah. yeah You're better off saying Jesus, it was horrendous but we did well Yeah
2: Could you believe what you were hearing?
0: Oh, well, I, I, I mean, I knew, I knew some of the people on the tapes, so I, I recognised the voices immediately. And uh, so that was kind of an interesting uh, dynamic to the whole thing. I, I was shocked, obviously. Partly I was shocked that, you know, the tapes existed and how extensive they were and uh, that Paul had them. So, you know, it was a real sit-up kind of a moment. Now, I did genuinely say to him, I don't think you need anyone else. This is, it does what it does. I don't think you, you even necessarily need copy. The tapes are the tapes. So we had another couple of pints and he was very pleased. And then I remember it was a very sunny afternoon. So we were drinking in Mulligans and we said, we'll just go outside. And because there's, there's another pub, Ryan's on the, at the park in Sandivant where you could sit outside. So we went outside and had a couple of pints. And then I think the baseball cap maybe sort of moved up and everything. He got very comfortable. And then Paul turned to me and said, where are the tapes? What where are the tapes? And I said, "I don't know. I didn't have them. You had them." Uh, and the two of us got into a complete panic, and we went tearing back to the first pub to try and find. But anyway, they were in the laptop. Unbelievable. Still in the, the, the CD was still in the in the, in in the pocket, and we relaxed a little bit. And then over the next couple of weeks, we kind of sat down and very carefully and very soberly went through everything.
2: There are a lot of tapes to get through. I'm not going to ask you to go through each and every one of them with me, but. Can you perhaps talk me through some of the key players?
0: Yeah, I think th- there are a couple of key players. As you say there are lots of tapes, and there are some people kind of dip in and out. David Drum obviously is the key player, and I think there was one of the one of the trials, the subsequent trials. Uh, I think a judge talked about Hamlet without the Prince because David Drum wasn't there, and and he is the central kind of figure who emerges really from the from the tapes. I just should be recording these calls, just going to fucking crack, or least making notes. He was on to me as well. Oh, it's fucking awful what's going on out there. I mean, the fucking Germans on us now, David, you know? He's saying, uh, look, uh, have you seen any uh, kind of strange money, market money coming through in the term? He was the CEO at the bank, he was the CEO at Anglo at the time. Although I think in the public mind at that time, Anglo would have been more associated with Sean Fitzpatrick or Shawnee Fitz, you know, the kind of guy who was a, a national nickname. Whereas what you really get a sense of on the tapes, I think, is, is David Drum as a very powerful, very smart, very bright figure. And then the other kind of core figures who you, you hear a lot from are Jumbo, who's a senior executive at the bank, and, and Peter Fitzgerald, who was another senior executive at the bank. So Jumbo, I think you hear throughout, and, and you hear him talking to his boss, David Drum. And and there's a dynamic there, and then then you hear him talking really to his peers about David Drum, and then about everything else that's going on. And I guess the thing that made it very kind of punchy at the time, and very clear, and and that really broke through. With my hand on my heart, business journalism can get lost in the numbers; it can be quite dry. It's guys talking to each other in a very quite natural way. I I think there was at one point a sort of an attempt, I think, by one of my colleagues, maybe, to sort of to be sort of very uh, prudish about the language, but it's natural language. It's the languages that people, you know, who know each other quite well, use when they're they're talking about things. It can be flippant, but it gets to the heart of of the personalities, I think, in a way that really nothing else did.
2: So Paul, you get this uh, piece of paper, you have this meeting, um, and then there is a tape but why did you wait so long before putting this information out into the public domain?
3: Well, because you had to dot all your I's and cross all your t's on this one in a big, big way. Kieran Kelly, who is the Irish independence lawyer, one of the finest defamation lawyers in this country, and uh, we went to him. He wasn't representing us here at the end though at the time, but we went and sat down with him and played the tape and said, "Okay, what are the what's the upside here? What's the downside?" He said, "This is public interest." journalism at its best. He said the same thing. We need to be absolutely sure of the of everything we have in that those tapes. So once by the way, once we did all that homework around the first tape, then we knew and we were all of our ears were tuned in. We knew all these guys as the tapes came to us um and they came fairly regularly after that and came in bunches. Um and we rolled them out over that week and then we rolled them out over subsequent weeks and then a year later we rolled out more of them I went to John Bow's house about two days before um, we had to do a doorstep um, to put it to him what we found in the tapes and I, I, I felt a bit sorry for the guy because he was after getting up out bed and was sitting outside his house from 6 o'clock with a photographer and uh, I walked over to him said how are you doing? it's Paul Williams here from the Irish Independent. I said, oh, you're the, you're the crime journalist? And because he, I said, I am, yeah. I'd like to have a chat with you about Anglo-Irish Bank. Well, he said, yeah, I'll be back in a few minutes. I'm just going down to the shop. So he went down, he disappeared for about two hours. I said, as he was going, doesn't worry, John, don't take your time because I'll be here when you go back, no matter how long it takes. So he came back and he brought me into his garden and he started telling me this was an issue of liquidity and I found myself getting really angry. Because what I did understand, I understood viscerally what was going on here. I want a, a, a financial journalist. I said, "You know, you're talking about liquidity." I said, "I've been listening to your voice on these tapes," and I said, uh, "You are having a good old laugh," and now everybody in this country is paying the price for it. Now I probably used less parliamentary language than that when I was speaking to him because I could find myself losing my temper. But a part of me as well felt sorry for him because he t- seemed to be—he was the guy. Whose name was everywhere and his voice was everywhere because he was the point man because it was his phone that was being, t- we were playing the tapes from. But like, it wasn't just his fault. It was it, He wasn't the main decision maker. And he sent us in a statement at the time, then saying, denying everything uh, that, you know, this was, and he kept using the word to me, liquidity. This was an issue around liquidity, you know, the seven billion that he took, that David Drum, he said, took out of his arse. And I said to them, you know, why would he take a figure like that out of his arse? Because I had read those words, remember, and we'd heard these These words are all on the tape. You've heard them uh, yourselves. Uh, you know, uh, like, it can't be too big. It, can, it, it can't be too big to scare them off, but it has to be big enough to show them there's a problem. And then once we get them in and they're skin in the game, you know, we can basically ride that donkey wherever we want. And that donkey was the Irish taxpayer in the central bank. You know, it was... They've got skin in the game, but we can let it creep up. Then it doesn't matter. And one stage, by the way, in the tapes, I, I, I remembered they started laughing about the fact that they were hoping that the, the Anglo Irish Bank. There was talk in the chaos that was that ensued that they were talking about nationalising the banks, and they were saying, "Jesus, wouldn't that be great? We all get nationalised, and we keep our jobs, and we have pensions."
2: Incredible, <laughs> but, yeah. But
3: that added, that it was that cavity. It was like classic sort of, you know. The kind of attitude you see in succession, you know, that the little people don't count. And it was public service journalism. And it was it was a great honor to be part of that team and great honor to be working for the newspaper that did what they did, because it was public interest journalism at its best. And that was the that was the that was our protection. We knew that if any of us, myself and Fiona were taken away and in, and in, in, in Donan in the paddy wagon, um, that at least people would say they went to prison for, uh, uh, for, for, for a good, just cause. As an aside, uh, people are saying, you know, why were we sent to a, a room down in a hotel? I always joke, Fiona, about this, that the reason myself and himself and Donald were sent to a room together to work on this was so that we could get used to being together in case we were in a cell in Mount Joy.
2: So when exactly did yourself, Paul Williams and Donald O'Donovan um, decamp to a hotel room?
1: This was a, a curious film because we were working on it over the, the, the following period. There was, a, there was a lot of work to do in terms of preparation and presentation of the package and also on the, the legal side. There was then a, a point at which it was decided, right, we're, we're going with, with publication of this and that was on the far Monday of the 24th of June. And we did something that was very unusual which i don't really think there's a precedent for we basically gave the entire story to several of our media i don't know competitors compatriots other organizations to basically say to them we are going to be running this on monday if you need to do your own legal checks on its contents then so be it go ahead here's what our legal advice is here's what we will be putting out there, this is going to be a big story. So you can go off and, and do your own preparation. So we did that, particularly with RT and with with News Talk, with slightly differing different results. RT were, were were quite legally anxious, obviously about it. News Talk were as well, but they, they were more reassured by our our own legal advice. So I was dealing with different people in those organizations and and giving them actual uh, audio uh, recordings and actual transcripts to, to go out on, on that Monday morning. We were in on the Sunday night of the 23rd of June, putting finishing touches on, on things and just making sure everything was fine, and Nelson Mandela, word came in, was dying. So we were literally sitting there that night wondering, having flagged everybody that were doing this and actually had newspaper advertisements and everything running, radio ads running on it, were we all going to have to pull it all? Because obviously, if such an iconic figure in the world was to pass away, there was no point in... That would be the biggest story dominating the agenda for the following week or two. So there was a point at which it, it was decided... That word was coming through from South Africa that, that he wasn't dying, and Asmadell actually did die six months months later. That was a big health scare at that time in June. So was decided to go out on on the the Monday, and then literally everything just blew up the following morning. Like you, you sometimes have an inkling in your own head this story is going to be big. We didn't really realise this one was going to go so big because it was so tangible and and relatable that it it captured a public imagination.
2: In the second and final part of this series...
3: It really did take the world by storm.
0: The Irish independent newspaper has got hold of tape recordings of top bosses there who laugh about the fact that the bank has told the government it only needs 7 billion euros... (laughs)
2: I agree with the comments of
3: uh, the Chancellor last night in respect of uh, her comments about uh, revelations from tapes concerning Anglo-Irish Bank. I listened to, to the latest tapes, and I think, like everybody else, I felt quite sickened by it. It
0: got quite stressful, and there was sort of... Talk about a guard investigation into you know how the tapes had, had, had come into our hands. So these guys were speaking freely because they never
3: thought that their words would ever come back to haunt them.
2: And a huge thanks to Paul Williams, special correspondent, Donald O'Donovan, business editor, and Fiona Sheehan. Ireland editor for sharing their own experiences. I'm Siobhan Maguire, series producer of the Anglo podcast which was researched by myself with sound by Niall McMonigle and don't forget the second part of this series is out tomorrow. Archive clips from RTE, Deutsche Welle, build the BBC, Associated Press and exclusive tapes from independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget forget to like, follow and leave us a review.